I'm going to virtually invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'll read the first 28 verses this evening as Moses continues to deliver a series of sermons to Israel focused upon how they are to keep covenant with the Lord when they arrive in the land. How they are to glorify God not only in the nature of their worship, but how the exercise of their worship informs all that they do in life. Listen as I read from God's holy word. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy the name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do anything. I'm sorry, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet as for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Your tithes and the contributions that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but... At the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. And there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. 
You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. And the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised you. And you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. You may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns wherever you desire, just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that, you all may go we- that it all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings, you shall take and you shall go to that place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out upon the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this evening and we acknowledge that we are those who lack wisdom and understanding for we are afflicted by that great disease of sin. And in our hearts, Lord, we even as believers endeavor to rebel for there are things that we wish we might do that though they are even contrary to your word, we desire that which is contrary. Lord, help us to admit that we do love our sins, but you are seeking to make us new. Oh Lord, help us to turn away from that which is perishing and to find in Christ Jesus a sacrifice worthy Worthy, O Lord, to forgive us of all of our sins. And so may we even again this night embrace him as our only Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. I know many of you, when you read passages like this, are thinking, what? I mean, what is happening here? What is the point? I know how to skin and process a deer. Do any of you know how to skin and process a deer? Maybe some of you. Most of you don't. What is all this talk about meat and blood and pouring it out on the ground? You can be sure that to live in ancient Israel, or at least among the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness, and even when they arrived in the land and took dominion of it, it was not as clean a place as the streets of Gastonia. I can remember my time in Southwest Asia, walking down the streets and I'm not sure if I should tell the story because it'll probably be the only thing you learn or remember from the sermon. But parents would teach their children, their young babies, to pee when they whistle. And the reason they do this is because they didn't have diapers. They wore something called split pants. Split pants are exactly what they sound like. Um, They are pants with a split that enabled a child to, when the parent was holding them just so, They could squat down on the ground with these kids and then they would whistle and they would just pee on the side of the street or on the sidewalk. You never go anywhere with your shoes off and you never take your shoe, you never leave your shoes on when you go in anyone's house because the streets were filthy 
Israel was not a, a clean place, physically speaking. But Israel, or Israelites, were called to be a clean people. Now, many have interpreted this, and they say, oh, these are health and wellness regulations. The dietary laws are given to us for our physical benefit, except what happens in the New Testament. All of those dietary restrictions are lifted. Does that mean that God no longer cares for what we eat? Does he no longer care for our bodies? That's a very Gnostic way of interpreting the scriptures. Instead, what we ought to see is that all of these cleanliness laws were a way of expressing and applying and pressing down upon Israel a Christological, that is a doctrine of the Messiah, a Christological idea of what Jesus must do in order to deliver us from our filthiness. And that we are to be a people separated from the nations in the Old Testament by those things that are outwardly expressed. Later in the New Testament, those things that are inwardly expressed. Even as the Holy Spirit has now been poured out upon all flesh in the day of Pentecost. And from that day forward, we are known by the Spirit at work in us. But until that day arrived, or arrives... The people of God are to express their consecrated nature by worshiping rightly in ways that are clearly outwardly delineated from the rest of the nations, especially in the land to which they are going. They are to be different and distinct in the ways that express what will come later when the Spirit washes us of our sins. And one of the ways in which God expresses to the Old Testament saints how they are to be unique is the summary of the moral law. And the first great command, or the first command of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the great command that flows from that is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then also the second, love your neighbor as yourself. That God is jealous for our love, our attention, our affection, our devotion, our worship of him. How do we worship him rightly? Well, God does not leave us clueless. He tells us exactly what he wants. Exactly. In fact, it is so precise at times, we New Testament, enlightened, modern Christians go, well, that's that's quite specific. What if um, I want to do something else? No! And so we need to go back at least to the Old Testament and learn what God loves. Or at least this principle that God is a God who loves something and he has an ideal. And that ideal is that we lift up his name exactly as he has designed. And anything other than that is by definition idolatry. And so how are we then to worship This is one of those really fun sermons on the regulative principle of worship. I know this is going to be one of those like sermon audio hot ticket items. This is going to be like 28 people will listen to this sermon. (laughs) I'm kidding. What is the regulative principle of worship? I know that's a sort of mildly sophisticated theological term. It just means God tells us what he wants us to do. And we don't get to do the things that God has not told us not to do. We do what he tells us to do. And so this evening, I want to look at this text in three points. The first is the call to worship. The second, the place of worship. And then thirdly, worship lived out in all of life. 
Worship lived out in all of life. So the call to worship, the place of worship, and worship lived out in all of life. Let's look at this first point, the call to worship. In verses 1 through 4, the first part of worship is really fun. It's war. It's warfare. It's destruction. It is taking the idols that exist in the land to which you are going, you Israelites, and when you go in, I want you to take hammer, I want you to take pick, I want you to take shovel, and I want you to tear down every single one of those idols. I want you to melt them down, turn them to dust. I want them eradicated off the face of the earth. That's what I want you to do. Do demolition to demonic activity. It is warfare portion of worship, what you are doing even here on the Lord's Day is you are putting to death systematically the idols in your heart, the idols of this world. And God wants you to get rid of those things because you cannot worship God rightly if there are these things in your mind and in your heart that are tempting you even in worship. It's a wonderful Kathy Rogers song. Does anybody know who Kathy Rogers is? Old school. Judy Rogers. I don't know why I said Kathy Rogers. Judy Rogers. um, Singer-songwriter, Christian singer-songwriter. And she wrote a song called Alligator Shoes. And Alligator Shoes is about a child who's sitting in worship. And they're moving through this exalted exercise of worship. But the only thing that she can think about is this guy's fancy alligator shoes. And while she's thinking of these shoes, she's missing all of the elements that exalt Christ in worship. And she's repenting of that. Now, that may sound silly to you, but I can see every one of you. (laughs) I know when you're distracted. I've seen this. Listen, I was in my study an hour ago going, (laughs) I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to come to worship, and the only thing you really want to do is be in your bed. Because it's a Sunday afternoon, it's about 4 o'clock, or it's that witching hour, you know, when your children begin to lose their minds. Like something has happened. They're all scheming against you simultaneously. And you just want to get them in the car and go to church. And so you lose your cool. <laughs> One side of worship is putting aside, laying down, putting to death all of those things that may compete with the lordship of Yahweh. And you've got to... Put them down. You've got to kill them. You have to destroy them. That is part of worship. But not only do we destroy the places and the things that the nations worship so that we won't worship those things, but look at verse 5. So that was verses 1 through 4. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, and so on and so forth. And look at verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. So look at verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes. Now where has that place been so far? The tabernacle. And at the tabernacle is the altar. 
And at the tent of meeting is the Holy of Holies, that God dwells with his people through the ministry of atonement as they bring their sacrifices and they place their hands upon the altar or upon the sacrifice. Their sins are covered and they are able to fellowship or meet the tent of meeting, meet with God. Now, as Israel is going to the land, what they will do is they will upgrade from a tent to a house, a temple, a beautiful, ornate structure, and God gets to choose where to put it. He gets to choose all of this. So let me just get this out of the way. You are not the center of your walk with the Lord. He is. And he gets to direct you where to go. He is God, and you are his beloved child. You must submit to his will. And it's true then, and it's true now. God says, I'm going to go somewhere... I haven't told you where I'm going yet, but wherever I go, that's where you meet me. I get to determine the meeting place. And all you say is, yes, sir. (laughs) Okay. Why? Because there is no more important place for the creatures made by God than to be in the presence of their creator. God's whole intention is to restore what was lost to man in the garden. His fellowship, peaceful, reconciled, joyous fellowship. But the only way that can happen is through the shedding of blood. And the place where that happens is the temple. And so you destroy the high places of the pagans and the heathen. You go to where I tell you, and this is what you do when you are there. This is what we find in verses 1 through 7. And so in verses 6 and 7, we see what you actually do. Well, the Israelites were to make burnt offerings and sacrifices. The altar was the center for them. It was everything. And not only were you to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices, but you were also to bring tithes and offerings. Within the service of the saints, within the worship of the saints to God, they bring a sacrifice to the Lord, and God accepts that sacrifice in their place, but they also bring to the house the resources necessary to care for the place where those things take place. Without those tithes and offerings, there would be no temple, there would be no altar, there would be no offerings, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Do you see? You see what happens? Why this is all linked together? And not just burnt offerings and sacrifices, not just tithes and offerings, but look at verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We're talking about corporate fellowship in the raising up of song and eating together. Listen, we do all of this as a church. We've done it all. We've done it hundreds of times together. We bring to the Lord the sacrifice. We come by way of the altar, the shed blood for our sins, and we express this. Upon that altar, through that altar, we approach the Holy of Holies and we draw near to God. We bring to Him our tithes and our offerings for the maintenance of the house. We sing His name. We come together and we eat together. That's the church. It was the church then, and it's the church now. And God is saying, this is what you do. It's the template for Christian Lord's Day worship. 
It's the template for what we do when we come before him. The Lord was providing the Israelites clear instructions as to how they were to worship him rightly. And why was this necessary? Because we are terrible at inventing ways to glorify God. Do you know why? Because we want to glorify God anyway. We want to glorify ourselves. We want to invent ways in which we can get around glorifying God. I remember being asked this question one time as a father about tithing. I was asked this question. So I'm going to lose my money? And I thought, oh no. 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 You get to give to the one who has given you everything. And if we taught, and we do, a pretty clear rule in Scripture, let's give 10%. 10%. It's a pretty low tax bracket, isn't it? <laughs> I know many of you begrudge giving 30, maybe less, maybe 40. 10% to the one who's given us everything. God is calling the people to exhibit in their life in the land a devotion that is informed by divine revelation. God tells us how to live. He tells us what to do. And he tells us where to go. And that brings me to my second point, the place of worship, Beginning in verse 8, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet has come to the rest of the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name great, dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you, you, your burnt offerings. So he continues this theme. Kill those things and don't do what's right in your own eyes. Let me apply this principle today. Worshiping through a television screen on your couch is not worship. It cannot be worship. Because that is not the place that God has prescribed for the local church to meet unless the entire local church happens to be in your living room. But the body to whom you have made vows to gather to worship together goes somewhere. It doesn't have to be here. We could, we could actually move into the parking lot, but I don't, I don't advise that until we get a new parking lot. It's just not nice enough, right? Would it be nice enough if we had a new parking lot? Probably not. It'd be very hot in the summer. Wherever the people to whom you have made vows to love and support and worship together, wherever they are. Here is the problem with that perspective. The world thinks it's me, it's God, it's my Bible, and that's all I need. And what the Lord is saying to Israel is this. Here is the essential point as it relates to your worship of me. It's not where you are, it's where I am. Wherever I am is where you are to be. He has spelled it out clearly. Which loving spouse is content with FaceTime? 
Can you run a marriage on FaceTime? Can you nurture the saints and build a body? No. God understands that proximity is everything. It is everything. And when I say everything, I mean this. Every sinner you've ever met longs to be in the presence of their maker, yet they know that they stand before him judged by their sins. Romans 1 And they hate God as judge because they cannot find a way out of their sins. And so what do they do? They invent other gods, other ways of atonement, and they apply those things to their life. All the while they know there's something wrong. It's not enough. Because the methods they're applying are not divinely given. They're still the inventions of men. And God is saying, I am the true God. I have the true salvation. And here is what it is. You come to me and you receive from me what is essential. And at the center of all of this, and we will see how this principle is developed as we move to the second half of this text, what is essential in all of this is that we get circled up around God's tent, his tabernacle, his temple, which at the very outset of it is the altar and the sacrifice. It is the blood that is shed in order to allow you to be near God and not be smited off the face of the earth for your sins. And so there is a specific way and there is a specific place. And it is one place. And every element that we see that I've already focused on, atonement, devotion through tithes and offerings and the corporate rejoicing together at the table and with singing, every element resounded with the idea not of giving but receiving from God what is necessary for salvation. It resounded with the idea of grace and it resounded with the idea of putting to death idols. This worship did not look like the worship of the pagan nations. And it looked different for a reason Because God wanted Israel to be weird and strange and alien in contrast contrast to the worship of the nations. He wanted all worship directed to him and all worship directed by him. Anything less is idolatry or anything less would lead to idolatry. And so we must be those who are open to receiving instruction not engaging in invention. And as soon as we see that there is this covenant blessing, there is attached to it covenant obligation. That means you must obey. In order to fellowship with God, you must fellowship on his terms. And the way in which your heart will be moved to do that and not resent that God is the one who gives the shots or calls the shots is that you must acknowledge the glorious gift that you have received from Yahweh that is mercy and kindness and affection. When you are enraptured by the glory and the affection of God, worship becomes easy. It becomes natural. And so Moses takes this concept and he applies it to all of life. And this leads me to my third point. Worship lived out in all of life. Here here is why you will hear your elders say, be in worship, 
and be in worship Sunday morning and Sunday evening and endeavor to keep the whole day holy to the Lord. It is because what you do on Sunday trickles down to every part of your life. And who you are on Sunday is a reflection of who you are Monday to Saturday. Do you struggle to worship God on Sunday? What do Monday and Saturday look like? What do they look like? If you struggle to open your Bible and to exercise some manner of discipline in reading the Scriptures and applying them, in life, in applying them to your life, what does Monday look like? When you have a whole day. A whole day. Here's the problem. We treat Sunday like summer. What do I mean by that? Summer is when you do nothing productive. Right, kids? It's PlayStation all the time. And you just sort of get strung out on pizza and the pool and video games. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I love pizza. I love pool. And I love video games. But a steady diet of those things don't make you fit. They do what? They make you unhealthy of body and mind. And we treat Sunday like this. Sunday is another day where I can just not have to worry about the obligations of life. And so, throughout the history of God's interactions with men, there has been this constant discussion and dialogue between God saying, don't do whatever you want to do on the Lord's Day. Devote it to me. For this reason, you need a day in seven where you are having your batteries, your spiritual batteries recharged so that you might go out into the world and face all of those temptations, all of those high places, and demolish them. Demolish them. What we learn from Scripture is this. As in worship, so all of life That the regulative principle doesn't just apply to what we do on Sunday. It applies to every decision you will ever make. Does this decision exalt the one who lives with me? God himself. Does this decision exalt the one who has given his life for me? And so what Moses does is he says, listen, there are some things you must do exactly in this place. But you don't have to eat all your meat at the temple. You can go eat meat at home. But you can't do this. You can't eat the blood. You cannot diminish the beauty, the audacity, the holy terror of the altar every day. You cannot in your life diminish the significance of that dead animal on that piece of stone. You cannot Monday through Saturday, or for them, Sunday through Friday, bring low the sacrifice, hoping to then come to the temple and understand its significance. This is why we do not take the blame of the Lord our God in vain. We don't drag his name in the mud. We hold it up like this all the time. Always. Why? Because he's worthy of it. And so what Moses is saying isn't 
every Monday, you need to wake up and you need to go offer a little thing on your altar. This is Eastern mysticism. Have you seen those homes? Little Buddhas everywhere? What? They have their idols. We have our idols. We find ways in which we diminish the significance of the altar. We do it by taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. We do this by bringing his name through the mud. We do this by not keeping the Sabbath and also not obeying in those things that we ought to do Monday to Saturday. We do this by not living, here's this fancy Latin term, coram deo, before the face of God. And because we do not take this principle in worship where we exalt the name of our Redeemer and we don't go out on Sunday into the world on Monday with our hands at the same posture where we exalt Christ in all things, in all that we do, whatever that may be, we are holding up the name of God. And as long as you do that, Moses says, eat. Eat. But do not in your eating, that is, what you do Monday to Saturday, do not let it bring down the name of Christ. Or, as Moses would say, diminish the glory of the altar. As in worship, so all of life, what you are learning to do in worship isn't to remember the parts of liturgy. I don't care if you take these home and file them in some shoebox. I don't care if you can remember what element was used on what day. Listen, I don't remember most of my sermons. I've gone back and I've had to sit, think, did I even preach through that book? And then I looked back at my notes and thought, I don't remember even saying this. You have forgotten vastly more information than you've ever remembered. And it only gets worse as you get older, kids. But what I know is this, that the whole course of Revelation culminates in this central point, and that is to receive the salvation that God has for us in the altar and then to not tarnish or bring low that sacrifice by making little of it in our lives. And you know who does this best and sins the worst? It is you and it is me. It is the people that know what the altar is for. It is for the covenant people of God in particular that Moses gives this warning because the world doesn't know. All they have are tarnished altars. All they have are unholy high places. But the saints know what the altar is for. And what are we called to do? We are called to, in every moment of our lives, live in light of the atonement. Don't cheapen grace. Atonement resonates or ought to resonate in everything we do, and so we are to hold it up as significant. The scriptures say, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord it's not just enough to do it on Sunday. Do it every day of your life. Consecrate him. Hold him up in worship and in life. And guess what will happen? The pagans 
the heathens. You know who I mean. You have some as neighbors. <laughs> they'll look at you and they'll wonder, who is this nut? Who is this guy? You won't see it on a yard sign, will you? You'll see it through the faithful lived life of the saints. A life lived out in fear of the Lord before men who do not know how to fear him properly. Every component of their lives, every component of our lives are to reflect the central theme of redemption. To glory in the one who lives no longer in one place. But what does Christ say to the woman at the well? It is no longer that mountain or this mountain. Wherever there is word and spirit. The reality is this. Even tonight here in the presence of God as his people. As a congregation devoted to love and good deeds. We ought not cheapen. But apply the meritorious work of Christ to our lives. And so we are to go forth. Covered by the shed blood. Not wasting it. But reveling in it. And proclaiming to the nations. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God we do ask.